Why don't you turn around and say hi to a couple people? It was great having Holland come and share with us, and I think he has some albums and stuff back in the foyer. Don't go now, wait till after church, but you can pick those up. Holland has written some of the greatest worship songs the church has, and, and uh, it was a blessing to have him come and share with us tonight. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Go to the New Testament and then go left a little bit. Uh, while we're moving in our journey through the Bible, we're just about finishing up the Old Testament tonight, Lord willing, as we look in Zephaniah and Haggai, it just leaves Zechariah and Malachi. Now, next Wednesday night is Thanksgiving Eve, so we'll have a special Thanksgiving Eve service where we'll do something on Thanksgiving, so that means we won't pick up um, Zechariah until, well, then the following two weeks I'll be in Israel, so when I come back, then it's Christmas, so one of these days we'll finish the Old Testament and then be moving on into the New Testament. So it's exciting to make, I guess we've been at this for six and a half years and just about through the Old Testament. So that's, that feels, feels good. Zephaniah was a prophet in the kingdom of Judah as they were winding towards the deterioration of the nation. Zephaniah was a contemporary of Habakkuk, who we looked at last week, but he was before Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied for like 50 years, and uh, he prophesied all the way through the end of Judah and the Babylonian captivity and, every, and everything. Zephaniah is prophesying at the time before, well, he was probably born when Manasseh was king. Manasseh was the worst king in Judah ever, probably. But Manasseh was succeeded by his son Josiah, who became king when he was eight years old. And uh, of course, for the first few years, he wasn't really running things. Um, he was just, you know, he had aides and everything helping him to do that. But that was about 641 BC. About 630 BC, about the time Josiah hit like 20. He, his heart was touched, and, and there were major reforms. Josiah did a lot to get rid of the idolatry and everything. One of the two major times of reform in the kingdom of Judah, the other one was under Hezekiah. But Zephaniah is a contemporary of Josiah, and so probably started to prophesy in the early days of Josiah's reign, and probably before most of the um, reforms that later happened. And a lot of scholars believe that Zephaniah was actually responsible for spurring Josiah on to making the reforms that God was calling for them to make. So interesting little book, just three chapters. And but we see the heart of God, and we also see how God won't tolerate idolatry and sinfulness. So 
book starts out, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, not the king, another Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, no one questions the legitimacy of this book or the authorship because of verse one. Nobody's gonna go to all that trouble uh, if they were just faking it. So he announces God's destruction, God's threat of destruction, and he says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord, says Yahweh, Jehovah. I'll consume man and beast, I'll consume the birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I'll cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. So God says, I've had it with the idolatry and I'm gonna level this place. And of course, it's a, it, it becomes kind of a, foreshadowing in parts in this book of the ultimate destruction that's going to happen as God judges the world. But here in particular, he's addressing Judah and Israel and, and is probably a reference just to the Babylonian invasion uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. He's just saying, I'm gonna level the place and I'm gonna deal with everyone who's there. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah. Now, those who worshiped the host of heaven on the housetops, those who were into astrology, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. Milcom was an Ammonite god who was basically the same as Molech. And so notice what he's addressing is that they didn't just leave God and take up these other idols. They just wanted to include these other idols in their worship of God. But God won't tolerate that. He doesn't share very well. And, and so he's telling them, no, you have to choose. You're either gonna worship me or you can worship somebody else, but don't worship someone else and me. And God takes a very dim view of anyone who tries to kind of mix up their religions, a little bit of God, a little bit of other faiths. And there are a lot of religions nowadays that try to do that. And pretend that they have elements of different religions, but God wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth, and he's very exclusive that way. But he says in verse six, those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. They had that heritage, but they quit praying. They quit really wanting God's guidance. Now he says, be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is an expression that refers to this is the day that God's going to judge. Sometimes it's used in a technical sense of, of his second coming, and certainly that's a part of the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord, his day means he shows up, and he's usually not happy on his day. And uh, it says, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he's invited his guests, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. So all those who had been affected by the religions of the other countries, and here he's addressing the leadership, and God generally nails the leaders first. The people who should have been leading the people toward God 
we're actually causing them to be more interested in alternatives and new ways of doing things. And so he starts with them and he's going to punish them. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold. What does that mean? Well, it, it had to do with the worship of Dagon. And they would dedicate their doorways to Dagon. And then you, it was bad luck to step on the threshold itself. And so here he's kind of making fun of people who follow Dagon and said, you know, you guys that are skipping over your doorposts, uh, I'm going to nail you too. Who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. This is what's bringing the judgment on is these superstitious practices that are connected to pagan gods. And remember, God, it is just superstition. The, Dagon's not a real god. Molech's not a real god. These are all pretend gods. And you go, well, then what's the big deal? A lot of times we think that these gods are in, in a rivalry against the real god, and there's some kind of a titanic struggle, and that's not the case. But the reason people believe in pretend gods is because they don't want to believe in the real god. And as long as you're believing in a pretend god, then the real God can't help you. And so that's what's so dastardly about it is that these crazy superstitions, you know, people will rely on their horoscope instead of praying to God and asking for wisdom. People will, you know, be so nervous about, you know, knocking on wood and things like that. And we don't have to be paranoid about these practices. They're just plain stupid. Idolatry is always stupid. Worshiping stuff is always stupid, and the Bible always says that. Hey, those are just dead gods. But the problem with worshiping any kind of fake thing is that it keeps you from the real deal, and that's why God's so upset about it. Verse 10, there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, one of the gates there in Israel, in Jerusalem, a wailing from the second quarter, one of the neighborhoods, a loud crashing from the, hill, from the hills, Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh. Maktesh was an area of old Jerusalem that was primarily shops. It was, it was, well, in a really cheesy little way, kind of the Wall Street of Jerusalem. But he says, you wail who live there, you business people, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. It always comes back to that eventually, money. It's always money that causes people to wander away from God. It's why, as we saw Sunday, when, when Jesus approached the rich young ruler, he said, you want to follow me, but you have one problem, and that's your money. You won't let go of it. And, and so often, with these gods, the reason they started worshiping these gods is they thought it would make them money. And some of them were selling the gods in order to make money. And they're worshiping at these temples because that was very profitable and productive. And really, things haven't change that much. Today over those days, what we spend our money on is just as foolish as their little idols generally. When you think about what we spend money on, oh man, and God will end up taking that money away so that you'll either decide to sink or swim with him and follow him. And so he usually will attack the pocketbook first. When he's going to corrupt someone, he affects their pocketbook as well. But also, you know, when he really wants to call you back on track and bring you close to him, 
Whenever things go bad financially, I feel like it's a precursor to God's blessing quite often. Like Corey Ten Boom says, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And so when he pulls in the purse strings a bit, it could be a good thing as it was here. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Notice that their philosophy wasn't that, oh, God's bad. They didn't turn against God. They just kind of worshipped a God that was more or less a, the God of a deist, who kind of says, well, there's a, there's a higher power up there somewhere, and he must have started the ball rolling. He probably created things and then left a long time ago. Or maybe he made some little green men that plopped life down here and it evolved. But really, God's not involved in our lives one way or the other. Now, I get excited when I hear some of these radical atheists who claim to hate God. And you could just tell, you, you look at some of the guys that Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and some of these guys who are writing books against God, I like that. I enjoy reading their books sometimes. They're so easy to pick apart. But not only that, I think there's a reason why they're crusading. I personally think that people who claim to be radical atheists are halfway there. Because I really, you don't hate someone that you don't believe in. And so most of them are mad at God because they feel like God let them down. He didn't do something they wanted to do. Like Ted Turner, who claims, you know, that He's, he doesn't believe in God ever since, I think it was his sister, he prayed that she would be healed and she wasn't. Well, that's not somebody who doesn't believe in God. That's somebody who's mad at God. God can deal with that. But the, really, the person who's really far from God is the one that he's going to judge here who say, hey, I don't have anything against God. Fine with me. People want to believe in God. If they don't, I don't think he does anything good. I don't think he does anything bad. I'm just indifferent toward God. Love and hate aren't that far apart. If you've been in a relationship for any length of time, you know that. They're pretty close. But love and indifference, those are the, those are the real extremes. And so those are the people that I get the most concerned about, the ones who don't even take the issue seriously. And so the Lord deals with them and says, the people who says God won't do good, he won't do evil, their goods shall become booty, their houses a desolation. I'm going to have to shake them up. They'll build houses, but they won't live in them. They'll plant vineyards, but they won't drink the wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath. He kind of writes a little poem here. Not a real cheery poem. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Fa la 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 la. Holland, maybe you can make those into a song. That would be good. It's biblical. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. And we will all come to a time when your 
silver and your gold won't cut it. There are people who live their lives for material things, but I'm going to tell you, I don't care how rich you are, I don't care how much you have, you really don't know trouble until you come across a problem that you can't write a check to fix. For, for so many people, that day comes when their kids are going through problems. And you see your kids who you love so much, and they have a problem that you can't fix by paying someone off. And that's really God's grace that brings people to the point where at least if you realize that your, your money isn't going to fix this, you're halfway home to, to turning to God and, and asking him to do that work. In the day of the Lord's wrath, though, money is not going to help. The whole land will be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Now the prophet calls the people and says, this doesn't have to happen, you guys. And all God ever wants, he, he never threats. He doesn't just like, oh, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you just so you are afraid and you feel worse when it happens. Whenever God is pronouncing his judgment, it's always an extension of his grace because he hasn't done it yet. And he's always saying, it's not too late for you. Come on, you can, you can repent. And so he says, gather yourselves together, yes, Gather together, O undesirable nation. He desires them, but no one else does. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, verse 3, look at that carefully, seek the Lord. All you meek of the earth, anyone who's been humbled, who have upheld his justice, Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Everyone doesn't have to get nailed. Everyone doesn't have to pay for other people's sins. But if you are someone who recognizes that you aren't the king of you know, the world, then for you, humble yourself and seek the Lord and turn to him. And he'll give you a break, even if he's judging a bunch of other people in the process. He'll be there for you. He'll be with you, and he will protect you. And now he goes on and says, by the way, it's not just Judah. I'm going to nail all these other countries that have been messing with me too. For Gaza shall be forsaken. You know, um, Gaza is that area of Israel at the far south on the far west. It's that strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea at the bottom of Israel. It's what borders Egypt on the south. It's, well, today, it's the area that they've given over, fenced off, and given it over to the Palestinians. The Palestinians think that they're descendants of the Philistines, and that was Philistine country in those days, and so that's one reason why they so wanted that land. Now, the reason Israel wanted to give the Palestinians their own homeland so they can put a fence around them and watch them carefully. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think when I first started seeing that they were giving them the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, I was like, don't give them anything. But it's actually worked out a lot better from a terrorism standpoint because you put a fence around all the terrorists and uh, you know it protects the other people a little bit. They're still lobbing missiles out over the fence and stuff, but nothing like what it was before. So he's addressing that area, really the next verses uh, 4, 5, 6, 7 are all dealing with Philistine country. 
and some of the different villages that are there down there in the southern part of Israel. Ashkelon's going to be desolate. Ashdod will be driven out. Ekron, these are all Philistine cities. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. Cherethites is usually used synonymously with Philistines. It could be that some of the people down there were descendants of, we think the Philistines came from over towards Greece somewhere. The Cherethites perhaps from up in Turkey, maybe a little bit more east. So, But they all were united as the Philistines, but sometimes they're called Cherethites and sometimes Philistines. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I'll destroy you. There'll be no inhabitant. The seacoast will be pastures, shelters for shepherds, foals for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They'll feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. And all of that happened as Israel came back to the land. They were able to take all the area that had been conquered by a combination of the Egyptians and Ethiopians from the south and the, the Assyrians and Babylonians from the north. Now he talks about the Moabites and the Ammonites. They are over on the east side of the Jordan River in that area that would be today over towards Saudi Arabia. And he says, I heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Ammonites and Moabites were always picking on Israel and whenever anyone would come and, and conquer Israeli cities, they would come in and, and plunder. And uh, so God's always pronouncing judgment on them. But God says, therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, melted, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride. This is what they get. Because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. So the Moabites and the Ammonites, where are they now? They're gone. They're great cities all reduced to rubble. And anyone who sits there and mouths off about Israel, ultimately, I would not be investing in real estate in Iran right now because with the, the threats of Ahmadinejad and, and their preparations of missiles and nukes and everything to try to go after Israel, something tells me land value is going to be going down in Iran here pretty quick. I'm hoping while I'm in Israel they'd take care of it, but uh, <laughs> sorry if you're going on the trip if that freaks you out. I, <laughs> I just have never seen a mushroom cloud in person. I, okay, that's not very politically correct. I I'll, I'll pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So now he heads down and talks about the Ethiopians a little bit, but probably because he doesn't mention Egypt. At this time, the Ethiopians had pretty much conquered Egypt as they had to bind together to fight against the Assyrians with some of the early invasions. And so talking about the Ethiopians and the Egyptians also, you'll be slain by my sword and he will stretch out his hand 
against the north, destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation. We talked about that last week. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, he would destroy them. They were a huge power at this point. They hadn't yet taken all the northern tribes into captivity. And so he says, I'm going get, to get to them too. The herd shall lie down in her midst, every beast of the nation. Pelican, the bittern, these, these desert birds will lodge on the capitals of her pillars. The place is going to be desolate. Their voice will sing in the windows. Desolation will be at the threshold where he will lay bare the cedar work. Just trash the place. This is the rejoicing city. You know, they used to party. That dwelt securely. Thought they were on top of the world. That said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation? A place for beasts to lie down. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Pride. There's nothing wrong with having a level of national pride as it's deserving as long as you give God the credit. And, you know, nationalism isn't a, isn't a bad thing as long as you keep God on the throne. But as soon as we start thinking as, as the Assyrians did, I'm it, I'm the, the country, we're the only ones that matter. Uh, a lot of people have that attitude in our country, frankly, and, and uh, I kid about it a lot of times, but, but seriously, if we don't understand that everything we have is because of God's grace and mercy, if we somehow think that we are the greatest nation just because we're the smartest and have the best technology and all that, we don't see God's hand involved, then we're cruising for bruising too. We're heading for trouble and he had no trouble taking down Assyria. God always does that. He raised Assyria up, used them for his judgment, and then raised up Babylon to wipe them out. Used them for his judgment. They got too cocky, so he raised up the Medes and Persians, used them to wipe them out, brought up the Greek Empire with Alexander the Great to wipe them out, the Romans to wipe him out. God, it's like line them up and knock them down. For God, dealing with nations is like a, a guy with a BB gun in the desert with a bunch of Coke cans, you know. He's just picking them off. No one's a threat to him. If you realize that you're blessed because of him, then he'll keep blessing you. But as soon as you start thinking that you did it, then he's going to bring someone else along to knock you off your high horse. Now he turns his attention in chapter 3 to Jerusalem again after talking about these other countries. And he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Quite an indictment there against God's people. She hasn't obeyed him. Then when she messed up, she wouldn't take correction. She didn't trust God. And finally, she hasn't drawn near to God. Lesson for us, if we want to survive, if we want to please God and be his people, then we certainly want to be those who, you know, are just the opposite of that. We want to obey his voice. When he corrects us, take the correction. We want to trust God, and we want to be as close to God as we can. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions, judges, evening wolves, that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. 
They've done violence to the law. It's that all of her leaders, religious leaders, political leaders, they've all trashed the place. They're all doing things on their own, not trusting God, not drawing near to God, not repenting, not obeying God. They're all doing that. They're all going to pay. But look at that in verse 5. The Lord is righteous in her midst. God's still there, and he's right. And he won't do any unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. So in contrast to the people, he just wants to point out, God didn't do anything wrong. It's the people that are messing up, all of them. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. (coughs) There's no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off. But despite everything for which I punish her, they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. He goes, man, I've been telling you and I've been judging you and you just don't listen. Every day you get up and you do the same stuff you were doing before. So now God addresses the people who are going, hey, wait. We aren't doing that. And he goes, okay, therefore wait for me, says the Lord. (laughs) You could meditate on that little phrase for a while. So many times in the scriptures, of course, at the women's retreat recently, their theme was be still and know that I am God. It's so hard for us to be still. It's so hard to wait for God because he never goes according to our timing. He's just like, come on, God. I know this is a perfect time for you to show up, for you to provide for me. And God's going, no, not yet. Wait, because we need to learn to do that. And so he tells them to do that. Until the day I rise up for plunder, my determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So he goes, don't worry, I'm going to do it. For then I will restore to the people a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. A pure lip, literally. The idea is probably not just that they'll speak the correct language. There are some commentators who see this as a reference to the fact that they've been so influenced by the various Canaanite cultures and the Assyrian culture and everything that even their language has been, you know, just inculcating all of this foreign mentality along with their gods. But probably there's no place that God really has a problem with that. And you can find places where, where the Lord is speaking through a prophet and using words that are transliterated from other languages. So I don't think it means that. I think what it means is, you know, at this point, man, I'm just hearing a bunch of noise from you people. But once I judge those who are against me, then all of a sudden you'll hear that, that pure voice ringing out. I'll hear that voice of praise that's, that's coming up to me and it's going to sound like what it's supposed to sound like. It's not just going to be a big mess. All the people who want to serve him with one accord. He says they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So I think what he's saying is everyone will be together and, and be um, unified, which is all that, Jesus really wants to see in the church, and we know how well we do that. 
From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So he's going to bring them back from captivity. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me, because I'll forgive you. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I'm going to break you of your pride. Pride is always what destroys people. Always. Pride is the source of every sin. It's the one that we ought to take very seriously. It's kind of funny, you know, when you look in the New Testament at qualifications of an elder, so often, you know, we look at the ones that a husband of one wife, and we argue about, well, does that mean one at a time? Does that mean, you know, just you have a legitimate reason to get rid of one? Or does that, you know, and, and we ignore so many of the things that the Scriptures just emphatically state are necessary. And I'll tell you something, for elders and pastors, so often pride is something that will get you promoted. It's something that our culture really appreciates and values. It's something that's disgusting to God. And we all have to know that because, see, we can all only deal with our own pride. If you see pride in me and you're right, if you tell me about it, I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to get mad at you because you're rocking, you know, my apple cart. But ultimately, every one of us answers individually to God. And I'm amazed at how many times when, and I have people, you know, often telling me how humble I am. But between me and God, I know the truth. And it's when I get with him so often that he just says, you know, just because people, you know, just because you can put on a good humble act, I know how selfish you can be. I know that. And, and he can deal with me in a way that really no one else does. I, I've never, when people have said, hey, don't you think you're being selfish here? Um, I rarely hear that. But when God speaks to me, then sometimes I do hear that. But it's so hard to know true humility and true pride. Pride, it, we know it comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, but, but you can't see it coming. That's the devastating thing about it. Sometimes when I feel the most humble is when I'm actually being the most proud. I heard George Burns one time speaking at a graduation at a university, and he told the graduates, he said, uh, the most important thing in life is sincerity. If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> and I think sometimes we, we feel that same way of, okay, we need to act humble. Forget your humble act. Get with God and really humble yourself. And that doesn't mean I feel like I'm nothing, doesn't mean I'm all down on myself. That's not humility. That's pretend humility. Most of that, what, what most people call humility is really just an attempt to get some attention. And that's where I say, you know, if somebody goes, oh, you're being so humble, probably not. If I'm being humble, you probably won't notice. When you think I'm being humble, I'm probably being self-absorbed and feeling sorry for myself. And I'm kind of hanging my head so that somebody will try to pick me up. But true humility is a security in God and who he has made us and a real capacity to put other people ahead of you because you want to, not because it's a useful gimmick. 
in your interpersonal relationships. And, and so God just deals with this all the time. And what is he looking for? He says, you won't be haughty any longer. Verse 12, I'll leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Ultimately, humility is trusting in God, believing that he can do whatever he wants. And however it affects me, it's okay. I want God to be God. I just want to trust him. When I trust him, I don't get too worried about what people think about me. I don't get too threatened by their attacks on me because I'm not trusting in you and your opinion. And I'm not trusting in me and my capacity. I'm trusting in God. And I know that he can deliver. And when I really do trust in God, then that does bring a humility that maybe no one will recognize. I think most of the people that everyone thinks are humble probably really aren't. Um, But the people who trust God are learning humility. And that'll defeat pride. And if, if we don't do something to get rid of our pride, we're going to destroy ourselves. We see that throughout the scriptures. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. The ones who are left are going to have it together. They're not going to speak lies. Doing the wrong thing, being dishonest, that's what got them into trouble. The ones who are left won't have a deceitful tongue in their mouth. They'll get to feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. They're not going to be workaholics. They're going to be like, I'm going to do my job, and then I'm going to be able to relax. Because if you trust God, you wait on God. If your life is a frenzy of activity, you're not trusting God, you're trusting you. And he says, ultimately, when you understand that God is God and you can trust him, then Yeah, you'll go to work, but you'll come home and be able to relax. You'll know that he is taking care of you. For me in my life, it's one of the greatest struggles is I always want to be doing stuff. I just, for some reason in my life, I've become convinced, and I can't blame anyone but myself, but I convinced myself that if I get enough done, maybe I'm going to be worth something. And, And that looks like humility to people. Boy, you know, you're always helping people. You answer your phone whenever people call. You, you know, you'll meet people late at night. You'll do, you know what? That's not humility. That's crazy. That's, that's just thinking that you're God. You know, if I trust God, then I realize, you know what? If somebody just urgently has to see me, they can see me in a couple days. They'll still be okay. I don't have to be rushing off always doing things. I, I really work at this. I'm, I'm really trying to learn this. I really do want to trust God. But I, but I so often find myself being guilty of having a Messiah complex. And frankly, in the ministry, that gets rewarded. People like that. They like somebody who they can call at the last minute and you can always count on them to come through for you and, and do stuff. And, you know, I... There are times when I've got a call at the last minute that, you know, uh, some pastor is sick and can I come and fill in for him? And I always, yeah, sure. And then I go there and I find out I'm, more, I'm sicker than he is right now. I'm like going there all stuffed up with a cold and he just stubbed his toe or something. And it's like, but really the truth is 
And people feel sorry for, oh, poor Dave, you're working so hard. Don't feel sorry for somebody that works too hard. Somebody that works too hard is just arrogant and prideful. And I'm just confessing that to you. That's the truth. That's the truth. When you're humble, you let God be God, you trust Him, and there comes a time when you can put the cattle out to pasture and you just lie down. You just take it easy. You wait on God. So there I got that off my chest. Confession is good for the soul. The remnant of Israel will do no unrighteousness and speak no lies and so on. No one, make them, no one will make them afraid. What are you afraid of? That's an indication that you're overinflating your own importance. Now, just the joy of God's fulfillment. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. It's time to celebrate. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He's cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. Cheer up, pick yourself up. The Lord, your God, in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Some of you might remember that old song. It comes from the King James, so it's hard to do from the New King James, so we won't sing it, but the, the song from the King James goes, The Lord your God in the midst of thee is mighty, mighty. He will save, he will joy over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, he will joy over thee with singing. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, mighty, mighty. So sometime we'll sing that, but it comes from that verse, so there you go. I have CDs in the back where you can. <laughs> I'm sure that one will pop up somewhere. But it is, it's a beautiful song of praise to God. And it's like, and ultimately that's when we praise God. All real worship happens when you just decide to trust him. And you just go, God, <laughs> I'm going to celebrate you. I'm so glad that you're God and I'm not. I'm so glad that, that you're not depending on me, I'm depending on you. And real worship from a worshipful heart, the purpose of it too, when we come together as we spend time in worship, what we're doing is we're telling God that he's God. We're acknowledging our own frailty and our own need and that hopefully primes the pump of humility because there's an incredible freedom that comes from realizing that you're not God and that he's okay without you. And so worship kind of brings that out in us, and so that's why he's kind of winding up the discussion here. And he says, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you, to whom its reproach is a burden, Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I'll save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I'll appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I'll bring you back, even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Interesting that when you let go of the desire for fame, that sometimes as you humble yourself and praise God, that God ends up lifting you up. It's what we learned from Jesus in Philippians 2 when it says, 
you know, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God or didn't grasp onto the fact that he was God. But he emptied himself and he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. See, ultimately, the path to exaltation just has to go through recognizing who God is. And he doesn't leave you there going, yeah, I guess I don't matter and God's everything. And he goes, okay, see you later. But he goes, that's what I've been wanting to hear. And I can bless you now and take you to a much better place and lead you into, into real glory that, you know, we are designed with a, with a need for glory, it's just that we take the shortcut and try to make it happen ourselves. We think if we praise ourselves, that'll get the ball rolling. But the truth is humility. And like we saw it Sunday in, in, uh, in Mark, where Mark chapter 10, where, where Jesus said, that's the way the Gentiles do it. It shouldn't be so among you. If you're ambitious, then you become the servant of all. Because that is the path to blessing and glory. It's not that he doesn't, you know, the ambition is good. The desire to be blessed and elevated is a good thing. You just have to take the right path to get there or you get tripped up along the way. The book of Haggai. Haggai happened earlier. This is, um, or I'm sorry, much later. This is after the time, well, Remember when the children of Israel were in the Babylonian captivity, so following Zephaniah and down the road, things deteriorated. Northern tribes were taken into Assyria. Judah was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. They were there during the time of the Babylonian captivity. You had Jeremiah prophesying down in the south. You had Daniel prophesying in Babylon, and even as the, as the Medo-Persian Empire moved in and you had Darius and everyone, Daniel was still up there. Well, there were basically three waves of people that were released to go back to Israel following the captivity. And the first group was under Zerubbabel. And so that was the declaration of King Cyrus that had been prophesied by Jeremiah. Daniel was still, he was an old man by that time, but Cyrus said that Zerubbabel could take a group of Jews, whoever wanted to, could head back to Israel. And only about, I mean, 40,000 people total, about 7,000 of them were slaves, went back in that captivity. There were millions of Jews up north by this time, but only a handful went back. And Zerubbabel started the work of rebuilding the temple. Now, later on, Ezra realized you know, it wasn't going well. And so Ezra later came and took a lot more people. And then finally, Nehemiah came in the third wave in order to rebuild the city walls and get things going on the temple. And so that first wave was slow going. You read about it in the early part of the book of Ezra. Well, <coughs> that's when Haggai was prophesying. And basically, he was complaining about how slow the progress was on rebuilding the temple. And then he just has some powerful insights about the temple and about buildings in general. And so we'll, it's only two chapters, but we'll see how far we get. In the second year of King Darius, the Mede who 
you know Daniel was dealing with. Sixth month, first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, who was the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest, who was there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. In other words, you guys are stalling and acting like what? What's the hurry? Kind of like us with our, we've been waiting to get a CUP to do the expansion here, and it just takes forever. But it's not our fault. It's the city of Aliso Viejo. Then the word of the Lord came. Sorry if any of you are on the city council like my next-door neighbor. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? So the word of the Lord came to Haggai, and he goes, You guys are putting up paneling in your own houses, and the house of the Lord is still trashed. You haven't even finished that. I mean, what's the deal? You'd think you'd take care of the house of the Lord first so you'd have a place to come and worship, and then you'd worry about your houses, but you got it reversed. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, he's saying, think about your life. How are things going? You've sown much, and you bring in little. So farming's not working out for you. You eat, but you don't have enough. Chinese food. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Modern fashion. And he who earns wages earns wages to put in a bag with holes. Basically, he says, have you noticed your life's really unproductive? Have you noticed that there's this recession that's happened? Maybe it's only affecting you, but it's happening. Why don't you put two and two together and figure out maybe you've got your priorities wrong, and that's why your money isn't lasting. God always promises if you do what you're supposed to do with your money and you give as he tells you to do, that he'll always provide for you. So God here is going, do a little reverse engineering. Life isn't going so well. Maybe you've got your priorities mixed up. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about it. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Now, it's not that God wanted a temple. He's not impressed with the building. But the fact that they were not taking care of the temple was just showing that they really didn't care about worshiping God because that was a place where they would come to worship God. And it was more important for them to fix their houses up than it was to worship God. And so God took offense to that. He said, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. You had big plans, but it's not working out. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. So God says, I'm going to make you unproductive because your priorities are wrong. Therefore, the heavens above, will you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I call for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. I'm doing this. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Amazing. (laughs) It's nice to hear when God speaks, and once in a while somebody actually does what he says. And they did it as the Lord had sent them, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. They took God seriously. They just came out of captivity they at least learned some lessons 
from that. So they had a work day, and they started working on the temple. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people and said, I am with you, says the Lord. And whenever you're doing things for him, you can be sure he's with you. He's going to be behind you. He's going to help you. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, encouraged him and, and the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So they started their work again after it had fizzled now for, you know, 15 years, 16 years because of the various discouragement that, that you read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So now the word of the Lord came again in verse 2 of chapter 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the remnant and say this, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? There were some people, and Haggai was probably one of them. Haggai was a very old man at this time. And they remembered seeing the original temple, Solomon's temple. That one was really something. And now they're rebuilding this one, and they're getting the work done, but they're looking at it and going, boy, this isn't like the old temple this isn't like the good old days. And we all have a tendency to do that. You know, we remember a time when it was better than now. And we glamorize that old time and that old day. And, you know, I've talked to you before about, boy, when we went to take the shag carpet out of Calvary Costa Mesa, it was filthy, all those hippies' feet on it and everything. And, you know, Chuck had made the statement, you know, if their feet makes the carpet dirty, we'll rip out the carpet. But, we never did, and the carpet was just in there, and it was really smelly, but people were like, you can't tear the carpet out. You know, I remember laying on the carpet right here when I met the Lord, and, and it was just like, oh, this is so great. And you know, back in the tent days, the tent was smelly, the kerosene heaters, and, and yet, you know, people today talk about it like it was, the, you know, some kind of Shangri-La, because we always look back at the old days and think that was better. You young whippersnappers, you don't know. It was way better in our day. The older I get, the more I think I glamorize the past. You know, all you need to do is go on TV land and watch some of those old TV shows that you thought were so good, and uh, you realize, no, I guess, I guess it wasn't that great. I still like Leave it to Beaver. But, but um, so he says, I want to talk to you old codgers who think that this new temple looks cheesy and it's as nothing as your eyes. See, they were discouraging the young people. They were getting excited. Woohoo, we have a temple. And they're like, yeah, but it ain't like in the old days. He says, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains among you. Don't fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it's a little while, I'll shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I'll shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. That's a name for the Messiah. And I'll fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace 
says the Lord of hosts. God says, this cheesy-looking temple, it's going to have a glory that far surpasses Solomon's temple because I'm not impressed with gold and silver. And see, the truth is, this temple that they were building would be the temple that the Messiah would enter that they would bring Jesus to when he was a baby. And those who were waiting for the promised Messiah would right there in the temple hold him in their arms. He was there. Later he would heal people in the temple grounds and, and, and would teach there at the temple. And it's like God goes, I'm telling you, I have great plans for this temple and it's all about my spirit being there and my Messiah coming there. And he goes, believe me, this will be second to nothing. I'm going to bring peace to you through this cheesy modern temple. And in fact, he would do that. It would be about 517 or so years later. But God would, he wanted him to understand, it's not the building, it's me. And, And so often we can look at a time in our lives when, you know, we were closer to God and We can start moaning about it and acting like it's never going to be like that again. Give me that old-time religion. You know, I praise God for the old-time religion. I praise God for old hymns and old teachers. And, uh, you know, I'm glad there's still a place for old people because I'm getting older all the time. But the only thing that made old good was God was there. And if he says, I'm with you, then I'm not going to sit and moan about it's just never going to be like the old days. No, it's going to be better because God promises to do that and to be with us. And we have to look forward. We can't get all nostalgic and look back because we get a distorted view of the past. And then we rob everyone today of the joy and excitement of seeing what God is doing. Stop looking back and comparing. Recognize God's presence, his spirit, Jesus himself saying, I'm with you always. That ought to be enough. We should be happy with whatever he does in our homes, in our families, in our church, in our country, in the world. We should just go, you know what? God is here. And I'm not going to cry and look backwards. I'm not going to pull out my old letterman's jacket and put it back on and, you know, moan about the old days. You know, I want to move into the future. Like Howard Hendricks, I think it was one time, who said, When your (coughs) memories are more exciting than your dreams, then you've started to die. And I don't ever want my memories to be, yeah, those were the good old days. I want to have dreams for the future. I don't care how old I get. I want to believe that God's going to do more and better and greater. Why? Because he's God. That's what he does. And he certainly did for them. I see the clock has expired, but I can't stop now. We'll just finish this really quick. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the word of the Lord came and said, thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law and say, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, if you had holy meat and you're carrying in your garment, if you touched it on something that was unclean, would it make it clean by touching clean stuff to unclean? And they go, no. Well, how about if you're unclean and you touch something does that make it unclean? Yeah. If you take something unclean, it, it will infect something that's clean, but something that's clean won't make things unclean. And he says in verse 14, 
so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. He said, your problem is you need to be clean, because when you are compromising and when you're sinning, then that is only going to pollute things that are clean. But if you clean yourself up, then you can have a, a, a good impact on others as well. And, of course, they needed to do that when they were getting the temple ready for cleansing, and that was the point. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. He's saying, remember, before you got back to work, things weren't going so well. I struck you with blight and mildew and so on, and you didn't turn to me. But verse 18, consider now from this day forward, because you've obeyed me and you took care of my house and you fixed it up, from this day forward, from the, when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, is the seed still in the barn? Yep. The vine, the fig tree, pomegranate, olive trees, they haven't yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. God says, you're on the right track, and now everything's going to fall into place. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll take care of everything else. So often, when your whole life is a mess, it's just one thing that's creating the problem. And that's why I always say, if things aren't going well for you, ask God to show you just one thing where you need to be obedient, where you haven't been. It could be a really simple, small thing, and you fix that, and everything else starts to fall into place. Beware of pushing things under the surface and going, well, that's not a big deal. It might be the big deal. Obey God, and he'll take care of all the details. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth, I'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'll destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I'll overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. Horses and their riders come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, and I'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, when I take care of everything and wrap it all up, Zerubbabel, you're going to be really glad you did this. You're going to be like my stamp of approval. As you led the people in this work, this is something that for all of eternity, you're going to be proud that you were involved in because you obeyed me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I just pray that in any area where any of us are being prideful or disobedient, that we would get into line. And let you be God. Let you be the Lord of our lives. Work those changes that you want to do for us, Lord. You love us and you're just so desirous of blessing us. And if we're in the way, please let us know. We really want to get that taken care of so that we can thrive and flourish and be blessed. And Lord, I thank you for this building that you've given us. This place where we come to, to meet with you. And because your spirit is here, we know that's what makes it special. And that's what blesses the times that we get to spend here. Lord, as we finish the night off with another worship song, 
we want to do this from our hearts because we want to just tell you that, God, you're God. We're not. We're submitting to you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.